Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because the justice and truth of God, because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from all the anguish and torment of hell. Our sermon today was prepared by Reverend Winston Bosch of the Jubilee Canadian Reformed Church in Ottawa. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, over the last several Sundays, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed guided by the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Apostles' Creed, as you probably know, is one of the most widely used summaries of the faith. It unites us with believers from past and present. You'll notice that Lord's Day 16 includes five questions and answers, and it addresses several important topics, including why Christ had to die, why he was buried, why we still physically die even after the resurrection, and what benefit we get from his sacrifice and death on the cross. Each of those could be its own sermon. But today we're only going to focus on the one question and answer, one of the least understood and most controversial lines of the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. Almost every week we either read or sing the Apostles' Creed, but how well do we understand those words, he descended into hell? Over the centuries and still today, there's been a lot of debate about just what that line means. It's hard to be sure exactly which understanding might be correct. And some people, especially in North America, think we should just do away with that line completely. They say it's so difficult to understand that it's actually meaningless. Not only that, they say, it's really not supported a whole lot by Scripture. Yet for centuries, the church has consistently confessed that Christ descended into hell. So what does this phrase mean? Well, it's doubtful we're going to resolve that entire mystery today after a couple thousand years of debate. But hopefully we'll gain a better understanding of how believers have wrestled with this over the centuries. So first, we'll talk about what that phrase definitely does not mean. And then we'll think about three different ways that believers have tried to explain what it might mean. So what can we be sure it does not mean? When you hear the word hell, a picture probably comes into your mind. Maybe you picture a place of torturous flames. Maybe you picture the lake of fire where the devil gets thrown. Those images come to our minds because the English word hell is translated from the Greek word Gehenna. And just like people have histories and nations have histories, so words have histories too. The word Gehenna is a transliteration of the Greek word Gehenna, 
And it refers specifically to a place, the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is a real place. It's just outside Jerusalem. And it was famous, or rather infamous, as the place where the covenant people of Israel did some of the most awful things in their history. For one example, it's the place where kings Ahaz and Manasseh sacrificed their children in the fire to the detestable god Molech. You can see how such a horrible practice would cause us to associate this as a fiery, hellish place. King Josiah eventually stopped that practice. He turned the valley into a garbage dump instead. Nobody could sacrifice their son or daughter anywhere, anymore there, so that sounds like it's an improvement. But if you've ever been to a garbage dump, especially an old-fashioned garbage dump, you know what it's like. It's a place filled with rot and filth. A place where there are maggots and worms eating things, where there's never-ending fires burying deep in the piles of trash. And that's what the Valley of Hinnom was like. And again, we can see why that would be very hell-like. It was such an awful place that eventually, comparing something to the Valley of Hinnom became a way of describing the place of final judgment that we commonly think of. In Jeremiah chapters 7 and 19, for instance, the prophet begins describing the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, as the place of God's punishment. It's described as a place of wrath where the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched, just like that garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. By New Testament times, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, was used to describe the place of eternal judgment and the torment of the wicked. Jesus himself, in Matthew 23, declares to the scribes and Pharisees, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? And he's using the word Gehenna there. He's asking them, how are you going to escape being sentenced to the future final judgment of the wicked? Also, in Mark 9, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, into Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fires are not quenched. Jesus clearly ties the imagery of that horrid valley outside of Jerusalem to the final judgment, which was also proclaimed by Isaiah. Now, the world likes to downplay Gehenna. We even try to make fun of it. We think about it as a place where the devil in his red suit with a pitchfork likes to poke people. But that's not what it means. It's a place that Jesus has prepared as a, for a specific purpose, a place for the final punishment of the devil and his angels and all the wicked. And nowhere in scripture are we told that when Jesus died, he went to that future place of eternal punishment. So we can be sure that Jesus is not descending into the lake of fire in our creed. That's not what the Apostles' Creed means when it says that. So what might it mean? Well, we all know that language can become confusing, especially when you're translating between multiple languages. And so in our creed, when we say hell, we're drawing from a Latin word based on a Greek word, which is based on a Hebrew word. So it's no wonder that Christians find it hard to understand exactly what that word means. So let's look at a few ways that believers have understood he descended into hell. The Latin word hell could also refer to another Greek word, Hades. And since we've established that Jesus most definitely did not go to the final place of torment, it's probably better to confess he descended into Hades. And what do we understand by Hades? 
Well, that's where you'll need to put your thinking caps on. Christians have suggested at least three possibilities of what it might mean. So let's take a look at each of them and see if we get some insight into what the creed is telling us. So here we go. Possibility number one. He descended into hell, to Hades, might simply mean his body was buried in the grave. Hades is a Greek word translated from the Hebrew word Sheol. We've sung about Sheol numerous times. We've heard about it in our scripture readings. In Psalm 16, we read and sang, You will not leave me down in dark Sheol. We also read from Acts 2, which quotes Psalm 16. Now in Acts 2, Peter is proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. And verse 24 tells us that God raised Jesus because it wasn't possible for death to hold him. Contrast that to verse 29 and to King David, who is both dead and buried and whose tomb is still here. David's body remains in the tomb. Jesus' body does not. So from reading Psalm 16 and Acts 2, we can kind of see how some people might conclude that Hades or Sheol just means the grave. If we take the wording of the Apostles' Creed that way, the phrase, he descended into hell, becomes another way of saying that Jesus was buried. And in that case, the creed might be read as he died and was buried and was really buried. And you might object at that point and say, well, that's just redundant. It's just repetitive, and you'd have a point. But here's the thing. If you compare our three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, there's an argument for that understanding. The Apostles' Creed says he died, he was buried, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose. The Nicene Creed says he suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose, leaving out the descended into hell part. Then the Athanasian Creed says he suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, and rose from the dead. That leaves out the burial part. And so it's therefore possible when you read these creeds together to conclude that the words buried and descended into hell are somehow interchangeable. So that's how some Christians have arrived at that understanding of what that means, that the Apostles' Creed simply means that Jesus was buried. But here's a second possibility. Some believe that he descended into hell could mean that his soul entered the place of the dead. So the first was that his body was buried, the second that his soul went to Hades. And the Greek word, the Greek word Hades and its equivalent Sheol certainly can refer to the afterlife where your soul goes after death. Your body stays in the ground, but your soul goes to Hades, the domain of the dead. Note well that Hades or Sheol is not our final destination. That's the new heaven or new earth for believers and the lake of fire for unbelievers. Instead, it refers to the place that our souls go between the time of our death and the time of the final resurrection. It's the intermediate place of waiting for God's final judgment. The Westminster Catechism argues for that position. And interestingly, it also seems to be suggested in him too. Most of you know that well. The second verse goes like this. Our Lord was under Pilate crucified. The burden of God's wrath he carried. Rejected and despised by men, he died for us and then was buried. Descending into death's domain. Instead of descended into hell, as, Psalm, as him one says, it says he descended into death's domain. The intermediate place where we await the resurrection. 
Now, just as for us, the word hell conjures up a picture, for an early Greek New Testament reader, uh, the word Hades would have conjured up an image in their mind of what the afterlife looked like. They would have been very familiar with Greek mythology, where Hades refers to the underworld, the domain of the dead. And in Greek thought, Hades had two sections. On the one hand, there was Elysium, which is described as the golden fields of paradise where heroes go after their death. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, at the end, when, spoiler alert, the hero dies, he's shown walking through golden fields. He's not on the new heaven and the new earth. He's in Elysium, the good side of Hades. On the other side of Hades is Tartarus, and that is described as the deepest pit. It's the bad part. Now, obviously, we don't buy into Greek mythology, but it is very interesting that in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, When Peter writes to people who understood that concept of Hades, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't offer any commentary. He simply says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And he uses the word Tartarus here. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So Peter affirms that there's a place where the fallen angels are kept until the final judgment, after which they and the wicked go to the final hell, Gehenna. And Peter's clearly not talking about a physical grave here. He's not talking about the body. He's talking about a domain for the soul. The Bible does teach that an intermediate state exists. For instance, Psalm 49 says that both the wise and the foolish die, and they go to Sheol or Hades. When the wicked go to Sheol, they're on the road to judgment. They'll eventually be consumed. The righteous also go to Sheol, but they're on the road to be ransomed by God. They're on the road to the new heaven and the new earth. So it's clear that different things do happen to those who go to Hades, depending on whether they are righteous or wicked. Think about the parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. That parable gives a little picture of the afterlife. Now, we have to recognize it's a parable. It's not intended to teach us exactly how everything works. So we have to be careful with it. But in that parable, Jesus also refers to there being two sections of Sheol. And those sections are separated by a huge chasm. Believers who have died await the final judgment in the presence of God, in paradise or heaven, a place of blessedness or beauty. And in Jesus' parable, that's referred to as the bosom of Abraham. That's where Lazarus has gone following his death. And indeed, we confess that our believing loved ones who have passed away are with the Lord. They're in paradise, in heaven but they're not yet in the new heaven and the new earth. They're still in an intermediate state. And even if that is a blessed state, we can take comfort that that's not their or our permanent home. God won't leave us in a disembodied existence. At the resurrection, he'll reunite our bodies and our souls and welcome us to the fullness of the wedding feast of the Lamb, where he will drink the wine new with us. That's our final destination. For unbelievers, however, Hades, the place of the dead, is quite a different experience. In Jesus' parable, the rich man is also in Sheol, but he's in torment. He's on the other side of the chasm. In 1 Peter 3, Peter refers to this place as a prison. It's not Gehenna. It's not the final place of fire, but it is on the way there. And Revelation 1.18 tells us that Christ holds the keys to death and Hades. And so, at the final judgment, he will open Sheol and Hades, 
and will declare his people to be righteous, welcoming them to his marriage feast. In contrast, the wicked will be declared guilty and thrown into their final destination, the lake of fire, into Gehenna. Now, I know this discussion gives us a lot to think about, a lot to digest, but we do need to dig a little bit deeper into this possibility. Because there's a burning question. If Jesus actually descended into the realm of the dead, to Hades or Sheol, what did he do there? There are scripture passages which seem to tell us something about what Christ did when he descended to the domain of the dead. Now, they are admittedly difficult to understand. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 20, together with chapter 4, verse 6, is one example. And I'll read that passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now that's a difficult text to read, much less to understand, isn't it? Yet it seems that the majority of early Christians in the first couple hundred years of Christianity were 100% clear on this text. They had consensus on what it meant. We have all kinds of biblical commentaries from back in the early days of the church. One of them is written by Ignatius of Antioch, who was most likely a student of the Apostle John. He was the pastor of the church at Antioch, and he probably lived about 100 years after Christ. And he states that after Jesus died, his body went to the grave and his spirit went to Hades. And there, Ignatius says, Christ preached to the Old Testament saints who were waiting for the Messiah, proclaiming his triumph to them so that they might know him as the Christ and that he might extend his salvation to them. And other early writers, including Irenaeus and Tertullian, agreed with that. Augustine said, the whole Christian church believes this. The Italian reformer Peter Martyr Vimigli agreed. And so do the Lutherans and many Anglicans and some evangelicals. So the consensus throughout early church history and among many today was that Jesus went to the place of the dead to proclaim his victory to the people who had been waiting in the Old Testament. He also went and declared the final judgment to the unbelievers on the other side of the chasm. Now, Reverend Bosch indicates that he personally finds this understanding makes a lot of sense. And he suggests that having that much consensus in the early church makes it worth paying attention to. He also says that it helps us understand texts like Philippians 2, which says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in that understanding, when Jesus goes to the domain of uh, Hades to declare his victory to the Old Testament saints, they learn who the Messiah is, and they bow their knee to him. And when the unbelieving in torment hear the cry of Jesus' victory, they also must bend their knee in submission. All of that said, these are truly complicated, difficult texts to understand. So that explanation still remains a possible way of understanding, not a firm conclusion. So we've seen so far that some people understand the creed to say that Jesus' body was buried 
and others that his soul went to Hades to proclaim victory to both the believing and unbelieving dead. Then there's a third way. And that understanding says that this line of the creed simply means that Jesus delivered us from hell. Consider that. He descended into hell could mean that he delivered us from having to go to hell ourselves. And that brings us back to the Heidelberg Catechism. At the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had added all kinds of non-scriptural things to their understanding of the afterlife. They said there's a special limbo in Sheol for children who die in infancy. They did a great job of removing all the comfort of belonging to Christ's body and soul by teaching that there's a purgatory where you had to pay off your own debt. And that led to the idea that you could buy indulgences to pay for other people to get out of purgatory early. And all of this was reinforced through these vivid images painted on church walls that scared people into submission. Now Martin Luther was content to stick with the ancient church's idea of what this passage meant, that Christ descended into hell. But John Calvin figured it was better to just confess that the descent into Hades happened in more general terms without making any hard and fast statements about what actually happened, precisely where his soul went or precisely what he did there. Calvin elaborates on that in his writings, and the Heidelberg Catechism follows his example. The Catechism does not say that Christ's soul descended into the domain of the dead to declare victory, but it doesn't deny it either. It doesn't say that it means his body was buried, but it doesn't deny it either. It doesn't take a specific stand on these passages that are hard to understand and difficult to explain. No, the Heidelberg Catechism instead simply says that Christ suffered hell in our place, a substitutionary atonement. He endured hell in our place, delivering us from the anguish and torment that we deserved. Your sin, my sin, indeed the sin of this whole world, deserves eternal torment and anguish, the judgment and condemnation of God. Yet Christ descended into hell. He substituted himself for all of his elect people, taking our punishment on his shoulders so that we will not have to suffer hell ourselves. And so, the Catechism gives us a clear theological statement designed to comfort us. It's written in a way that allows the maximum number of people to agree with it without taking a specific stand on those disputed details of what it means. So amid the debate that's gone on for thousands of years in Christian history and continues to be unresolved, the Heidelberg Catechism gives us some wisdom on the phrase, he descended into hell. And it makes this statement that everyone can agree on. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from all the anguish and torment of hell. And with that comfort in mind, let's end this sermon in prayer.